0: On the 13th of October, 2021, if you missed the first hour of the program, you can always go and catch it as a podcast, rebroadcast at MyFaithRadio.com under the mornings with Carmen tab. Oh, all right. A record number of workers are quitting their jobs. Hmm. Um, so the U.S. Uh, News and World Report um, frames it this way. About 4.3 million people quit their jobs in August. So when you think about that for just a moment, um, there, there are a lot of jobs available. Um, job openings uh, stand at 10.4 million. Uh, that's, that's, you know, the last day of August. Now, there were 11 million jobs available in July. So from one way of looking at this, job openings have declined. But, you know, here's the reality there are 10.4 million jobs available right now um, across America. And yet 4.3 million people quit their jobs in August. So that's nearly 3% of the workforce. Now, some of those people probably, most likely, went and took other jobs. So that's a change in job, not just a quitting the labor market altogether. So there's some conversations to be had there. But there's no question that what has been uh, termed the great resignation is underway. People are changing jobs. People are leaving the workforce. People are, in some cases, remaining idle. Um, we should think about that. We should think about how the culture is changed and how we function as a people. Um, if a significant percentage remain idle and remaining idle is not stigmatized. So, um, you know, the Bible says if a, uh, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Now, you and I both recognize uh, that obviously we're going to supply for the needs of those who are um, hungry and thirsty um, by no fault of their own, like people who are right now undergoing um, grave challenges around the world. In, in places where food is scarce for reasons beyond those people's control, right? We're going to make sure people have food to eat. We're going to make sure kids have food to eat. Like, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to make sure elderly people have food to eat. Like, But if you're able-bodied and you're just not working because you just want to be idle, like, from a Christian worldview perspective, I'm going to have a conversation with you about that. And, and I'm going to talk with you about the dignity of work. And I'm going to talk with you about... um Work existing prior to the fall, works not works not a result of the fall. Toil, toilsome work, might be considered um, a result of the fall, but work itself not not a result of the fall. There is work that is worthy to be done today, and you are worthy of doing work. So, um, one other uh, quick headline here, and this is uh, about Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, who delivered a speech. At the uh, annual session of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, also known as NATO, they had a parliamentary assembly in Lisbon, Portugal, um, and Nancy Pelosi was named the first recipient of the, quote, "woman Women for Peace and Security Award. And during her speech, she said this, <clears throat> people ask me, if you ruled the world, what one thing would you do? Nancy Pelosi said, I think about that a lot. It would be to prioritize the education of women and girls, she said. It would make the biggest difference not only in their lives, their families, their communities, but to the world. So I ask you today that same question. What would you do if you ruled the world? What would you do if you ruled the world? I mean, I do think we should have an, uh, an answer prepared. But let me also say this. This is a bit of a spoiler alert that job is already taken. His, uh, his name is Jesus. And one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that he is the ruler of the world, that he is Lord. All right, up next, I'm delighted to have back with us Todd Nettleton from Voice of the Martyrs. We're going to talk about our brothers and sisters around the world living in the midst of persecution. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. back to the program, Todd Nettleton from Voice of the Martyrs. You can find what we're talking about today at persecution.com. Todd, welcome back.
2: Thank you. It's good to be with you.
0: Well, it's wonderful to have you. Let's, um, let's start off with the uh, International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. Um, I am right now at persecution.com looking at the IDOP page. Tell us about the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians.
2: Well, the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians is a direct response to the first thing that persecuted Christians ask us to do for them. Pray for us. That that is what they say. When we go and we sit down with them and we say, okay, we're going back to America. We're going to talk on the radio. We're going to talk to churches in America. How can they help you? The first thing they say every single time is pray for us. So the International Day of Prayer is a direct response to what they want us to do for them. It is coming up. Traditionally, it's the first Sunday in November, November the 7th this year. Uh, like you say, persecution.com. There are lots of resources for churches, maybe for your Bible study group, maybe even for your family devotions. Uh, especially, I want to point people to the video there. It's about a five-minute video taken from the lives of the founders of Voice of the Martyrs, Richard and Sabina Warbrand. Uh, but it shows the choice that Christians face in many parts of the world. Hey, we can stay here and we can keep serving God but we might end up in jail, we might end up dead, or we could go someplace safe. What should we do? That is a choice that Christians all over the world are facing every single day, every single month, and this video kind of helps illustrate that to help us pray for them as they make that crucial decision.
0: So Todd, one of the, um, when we talk about prayer and we talk about praying for um, individuals, I think knowing some of those individuals, or at least having a little bit of a window into the life of a persecuted Christian helps. So bring someone into view. Who are the they? Who are the people we're praying for?
2: Let me tell you one that is really has, for some reason, really got on my heart. His name is Pastor Wang Yi. He is serving right now in China a nine-year prison sentence for the, the crime, if I can use that word, of leading an unregistered church in China, uh, and so he was arrested at the end of 2018. He was sentenced to nine years in prison. Uh, his wife uh, is basically under house arrest. They they don't say that, but they won't let her have any contact with the church members. They've even cut her off from some of their family. Uh, their son is named Joshua is about 13 years old. Uh, every morning a police car picks him up at the house to take him to the Communist Party school where he can be indoctrinated all day long with Communist Party doctrine. Uh, including the fact that his dad is is probably pretty dumb if he ended up in prison for nine years. Uh, that family, those are the people we're praying for on the International Day of Prayer. Pastor Wang Yi, his wife and son, and so many others like them around the world suffering for the name of Christ.
0: Um, Thank you for that. Uh, so let's put Wong Yi and his wife and their son Joshua um, on our prayer list as you know people we can bring into view as we're participating in not only the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians, um, but as we pray for them in an ongoing way. Um, it, it occurs to me uh, that Voice of the Martyrs is not just calling us to prayer, but you guys are on the ground uh, in ministry among people who are persecuted. So what does some of that ministry look like in a practical sense?
2: You know, I would say we kind of divide it up under three big umbrellas. So, so the ministry in more than 70 countries where Christians are persecuted The first area is what we call persecution response. And, hey, uh, your house was burned down because you're a Christian. We want to help make sure there's a roof over your head. Uh, In the case of someone like Pastor Wong Yi who's in prison, your father is in prison. We want to make sure the wife and the children have enough to eat. We want to make sure those children can stay in school. That is what we call persecution response. The second area of our ministry overseas is Bibles. And every year we distribute more than a million Bibles into hostile and restricted nations. That is something that that strengthens the church. It gets them ready to endure persecution. It is also a tool that they use to reach out and to share the gospel with the people around them. So, number one, persecution response, number two, Bibles, and then number three is what we call frontline ministry, and I somewhat half-kiddingly call them pre-persecuted Christians. They are pastors and church planters and gospel workers who are sharing the gospel in a place where people who share the gospel are going to get persecuted. They just maybe haven't been persecuted yet. And so we provide tools and training and encouragement for those frontline gospel workers to help increase their ministry, to strengthen them and also to prepare them for the day when they are persecuted themselves.
0: That's so good. Um, Let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I'd love um, for you to share with us about Sabina, um, I know that this is uh, a a movie that's coming out, and uh, would love for you to have the opportunity to share with us about that. I'm talking with Todd Nettleton from Voice of the Martyrs. You can find everything we're talking about today at persecution.com. Oh, of God. Oh, Continuing our conversation with Todd Nettleton from Voice of the Martyrs, you can find Resources for the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians at persecution.com. You can also um, find one of my favorite resources, which is this map um, uh, of places all over the world and, and invites us uh, to share not only those places, but the the stories of people in those places with our kids. Like uh, We have used the map um, in, in ways over time that I just have been really blessed by. Um, there's also a booklet i mean anyway, there's tons of resources there check it out at persecution.com todd talk with us about the movie i know that it's like a it's like going to be a movie event in in theaters talk with us about sabina
2: well we mentioned international day of prayer for persecuted christians november the 7th then immediately following that monday tuesday wednesday right after that sunday november 8 9 and 10 sabina tortured for christ the nazi years many of our listeners will have seen Tortured for Christ, the movie just a few years ago. This is really a prequel to that movie. It shows the story of how Richard and Sabina Wormbrand, who would go on to found the voice of the martyrs, became followers of Christ, and then how they launched out into ministry. And at that time, the Nazis were in charge of Romania, and they were persecuted by the Nazis before the communists take over and before they were persecuted by the communists. So it is, a, it is a love story, and it shares how Richard and Sabina met, how they came together, and then how they fell in love with Jesus as well.
0: All right, I love that. Um, I know that uh, we, we're having people texting in right now, Todd, about particular places um, around the world and what's going on. So I wonder if um, you could talk a little bit with us about Afghanistan.
2: Uh, Afghanistan is a, is hopefully at the top of a lot of people's prayer lists right now. Uh, here's the good news and now, and and there's there's lots of news out of Afghanistan. Many Christians that we're in contact with at the Voice of the Martyrs have made the decision to stay in Afghanistan. They saw the Taliban coming. They knew what that could mean, and they said, "Wait a minute." Jesus has placed us here. We're going to stay here. We're going to keep serving him here. He needs to have witnesses in Afghanistan, even under the Taliban. So that's one answer to that question. The other thing that I would just remind people is that it didn't become difficult to be a Christian in Afghanistan on September 1st when the Taliban took over and all the Americans had left. Uh, it has always been difficult to be a Christian. And the first line of persecution in Afghanistan is typically— not the government, not the police, it's your own family. It's your dad, it's your older brother who says, we are a Muslim family. You can't be a Christian and be a part of our family. So that's another thing to remember as we're praying and and that still exists even under the Taliban. Uh, So before you're persecuted by the Taliban, you are likely to be persecuted by your own family members. Uh, And so that lets us know some of the challenges there. But one of the ways we pray specifically for Afghanistan because of that family persecution, is we pray that whole families will be reached with the gospel, uh, that that the whole family comes to Christ at the same time or right around the same time to minimize that family persecution.
0: Oh, I love that. Um, I, I I love that image. Um, praying for entire families to come together to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is, the good news of the gospel. Um that is so that is so helpful. Um uh let's uh let's revisit your book uh, When Faith is For- Forbidden 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians because I find it a really wonderful resource uh, to have a window into um not only your experiences with Voice of the Martyrs but you know right, a real into a real window into the real lives of my real brothers and sisters around the world. Um, you, you shared that you've got, uh, some, some colleagues who recently visited Tajikistan and you've got an update on one of the stories chronicled there in your book, When Faith is Forbidden.
2: Yeah, this is a pretty amazing, uh, to to borrow from Paul Harvey, rest of the story. So I went to Tajikistan in 2004, just a few months after a pastor named Sergei Besarab had been murdered in Tajikistan. He went to a city called Isfara. He planted a church in the city where there were 126 mosques, but no church. Uh, And because of that, he was shot and killed. He was actually shot sitting in the front room of his house where the church met, shot through a window and killed. And I went just a few months later. I met Pastor Sergei's widow. Uh, I met some of his church members, some of the people he was with. One of them was another guy named Sergei who had been in prison. Pastor Sergei had been an organized crime figure sent to prison he was reached with the gospel in prison, and this friend of his, also called Sergei, had really prayed him into the kingdom. And Sergei told me, he said, listen, we know that someday the guy who shot Pastor Sergei is going to go to prison, and we have a prison ministry all over this country, so we're going to be waiting for him, and we're going to tell him about Jesus. And so that was 2004 that I heard those words. Just a couple months ago, some of my coworkers were in Tajikistan They were with Pastor Sergei's widow again, and she told them the story. That young man, the son of a local mosque leader in Isfra, who had shot and killed Pastor Sergei, was convicted. He was sent to prison, and in the course of his time in prison, he was assigned to a cell where his cellmate was a man who had been won to Christ by Pastor Sergei in the prison, had been discipled by Pastor Sergei and now he had the amazing privilege and blessing of leading pastor sergey's murderer to faith in christ so so literally this man who killed pastor sergey is now kind of his spiritual grandson and someday they are going to stand together side by side before the throne of christ singing praise to christ and uh, the pastor sergey's widow tamara said she had just heard a report from the prison Someone had walked into a room. They had seen this young man who killed Pastor Sergey. He was sitting there. His Bible was open on his lap. He was deep into the study of God's word. He was drawing deeply from it and just a confirmation that his life has been completely transformed. And in the, in the sovereignty of God, he was led to Christ by someone who had been led to Christ by the man he murdered.
0: It puts a whole nother layer on the visiting those who are in prison uh, reality of not only Christ calling, but the call of Christians. I mean, and, and the ministry that uh, the Voice of the Martyrs is doing um, with this widow um, in, in Tajikistan, um, but also with the wife of um, Wang Yi. Uh, and his son, who is, I mean, for all intents right now in China, like an orphan. Like, I just think that it is helpful for people to understand um, that the ministry of Voice of the Martyrs is multifaceted, multi-layered, and really meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters who not only live in the midst of persecution, but live with the effects of persecution— and so, you know, thank you for following up on the story of um, of this widow in, um, in Tajikistan, but also the good news story of, you know, how God uses what someone meant for evil and absolutely uses it not only for their own good, but ultimately for the good of others. It's really extraordinary.
2: Uh, it is. And one of the things I'm so proud of is we're now— 17 years later, we are still walking with that widow. We are still mm-hmm. supporting her. Our staff, when they go, they're still meeting with her and encouraging her and praying with her. We're not in this for the short haul. This is something that, that Voice of the Martyrs is committed to as long as the need is there. Amen.
0: Todd, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for um, what you're doing each and every day through Voice of the Martyrs. Let me invite everyone to visit persecution. Dot com. Get your resources for this year's not only International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians, uh, but, but a month of, of focusing on this at your local church and in your um, small groups. You can find those resources at persecution.com. Todd, as always, thank you so much. You're welcome. We'll be right back. All right, someday you just want to have a conversation about conversation. So I want you to think about contemporary art. I want you to think about uh, what kind of person you would need to walk around with you in a gallery of contemporary art to explain to you what's going on in that piece of work. Well, now I want you to imagine that you need a docent to walk around in the gallery of ideas that's being offered today, both in the spoken and the written word people are using words differently and the medium of the internet means that the pace of the meaning of those words changes rapidly it even just morphs so i feel like in order to keep up uh, not only in terms of understanding the world that we live in but in order that i can communicate effectively as a person of the word in a world of words i need a conversation with karen swallow prior so that's up next here on mornings with carmen
1: This is Max Locato, and you know we're caretakers of the message of Jesus. As you and I live out our faith, he is delivered into a faith-famished culture. We have the hope that this world needs, but sometimes we forget. Billion-dollar industries are conning you by luring you into lifestyles that will leave you wounded and weary. How about some examples? Pornography is one. Pornography, they say, is a harmless expression of sexuality. Hardly. It is as addictive as alcohol and drugs. Or this one. Whoever dies with the most toys win. Take on the liability. Borrow the money. But your maker tells you, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The lies are everywhere, and their consequences are devastating. Be careful. Don't get too cozy in this culture. This is Max Locato.
0: Joining us now, professor and author Karen Swallow Prior because I wanted to talk with a wordy about words. Karen, welcome back.
3: Are you calling me wordy, Carmen?
0: Yeah. No, it's a word. <laughs> okay. See, see here's here's the thing. I I think that we're allowed to make up words now. And um and so you know you're a wordy you're a, like a foodie you're oh, a wordy Oh okay
3: mm-hmm. oh I'll take that yeah I
0: also like the idea of you serving as like a docent walking with me around in a gallery of ideas um like helping me understand contemporary language arts
3: Well I'll do the best I can
0: Right instead of like contemporary art you're like contemporary language arts All right here we go I Uh, This all, like, bursted onto my mental scene when I was exposed to two new words, or at least new words to me. Uh, They're compound words. So I want you to imagine taking the word conspiracy and the word spirituality and smushing them together. So conspirituality was the—or conspirituality. I don't really know how to pronounce it. It's a little bit like, uh, (laughs) when do I read progress and when do I read progress— Um, And then the other smushed together word is uh, a compound word of amplify and propaganda. So that word is ampliganda. Now, conspirituality and ampliganda are words that have been used just in the last couple of days on major media outlets. And it got me thinking, Okay, language has to be flexible. I know that it's dynamic, but help me observe and understand how much of that is like, Natural and how much of it is forced?
3: Well, to one degree, all changes in language are forced, right? Um, Sometimes they happen slowly, such as when um, when two languages merge, as when Old English, which is a Germanic language, merged with the Romance language of France in the Middle Ages, the two very different languages, but when they merged over you know, actually a pretty rapid period of time, um, we got Middle English. But then sometimes, like the examples that you gave, someone can coin a new term, it gets picked up. And next thing you know, a few years later, Webster's Dictionary has added it to their, to their offerings. Um, so language is always changing. Sometimes, naturally through shifts in culture or even just different the ways that people pronounce words in one area can develop a different kind of spelling and meaning in another area Um, but sometimes people because we're inventing new things especially in the modern age with technology we're always inventing new words to label the new things we have so sometimes it does happen quickly
0: um so how do we say or can we say anymore that words are being misused, corrupted, or that sometimes playing with words leads to a devolution of communication versus, you know, helping us communicate better? Like, are we even allowed to say that anymore?
3: (laughs) Well, you've landed on a linguistic landmine here. Um, So just to back up a little bit there actually are are two sort of approaches to linguistics which is the study of of the structures and um and use of of words um there are two basic approaches one is called prescriptive and the other is descriptive uh prescriptivist and descriptivist so Those who are prescriptivists, and I fall a little bit in that camp, we're kind of like the school marms who say, this is how you're supposed to use the word, and this is the proper use, and don't use it the improper way. But this descriptivist, which is actually what all dictionaries are. Are just simply, uh, or at least in theory, they are. Um, they're simply describing the way language is used by the people who use it, and they just say, they just say, this is this is how it's being used, or and, th- and this is another way it's being used. Um, and dictionaries kind of compile those usages, which is why many words have so many different meanings. Um, so it's so there are two sort of directions, uh, two camps about how we should. Monitor language, I guess. Um, whether we should um, control it more or just allow it to uh, to evolve, which is going to do anyway. And throughout the history of dictionaries and linguistics, you can find people who fall in different camps. Uh, one of my favorite writers, Jonathan Swift, in the 18th century, wrote a whole treatise on how you know how words should be fixed and not change at all. Um, but that's, you know, that's that's a utopian dream. It would be nice if we always knew what a word meant. And it always meant the same thing in every context. But, you know, since the Tower of Babel, that is not how language has worked. Um, and so for me, even though I'm more of a prescriptivist, I find it exciting and interesting and challenging. I, I, I love words um, and it's, they reflect what it means to be human in that kind of complicated, messy way.
0: I think that is so helpful. Just just knowing that there are two different linguistic approaches. I mean, you're making an observation here that now makes total sense to me. When I am thinking that a person is misusing a word or a term, um, that's because I am, at least in that moment, operating in this prescriptive yes. um, per, per, prescriptivistic way. Um, <laughs> And, and the other person is at that moment operating out of just the natural use of a term that for them is now applied in a way that for me is new and uncomfortable. Um, and so I think that one of the conversational techniques that I've developed or tools that I've developed, and I mean, I'm sure it's, uh, it's not just mine, obviously, but I ask people a lot to tell me what they mean when they use a term. I no longer assume that when someone describes themselves as an evangelical or as a progressive or even as a Christian that we mean the same thing by the term. And so I ask people a lot to, hey, can you tell me what you mean? I want to be sure that I understand what you're saying, Um, and it's possible that we have different understandings of the meaning of that word. Can you explain to me what you mean when you use the term and whatever it was in the the prior sentence or paragraph that I – want to be sure i understand what they mean by that in order that i can understand the context in which they're using that term do you find that more and more and does that make our conversations kind of laborious
3: i mean i i think it i think we need to do that more and yes it is laborious but this is the only way we're really going to get beyond uh the surface level of the word to what people really mean i mean words are tools and They are simply a a tool to help us understand one another. And all tools are limited. All tools can be misused. All tools can have multiple uses. And so... To get the most out of those tools, we really have to understand how to use them and how other people are using them. So we need to ask those questions a lot more. A word that came to my mind when you were talking about, you know, those words that are now so loaded is deconstruction. A lot of people are talking about that within the context of the church, and It literally has multiple meanings and people use it in different ways. And so you almost always have to ask what someone means when they use a word like that before getting, you know, triggered or upset or fired up or before even using it yourself in either, you know, a praising or a derogatory way because it means different things to different people. Um, And that's because we're going through a cultural moment with in the church and, and in the culture, um, where where these things are being contested and, and changing. And so it makes sense that even the words that, that for a long time meant one thing are now um, being used in different ways. It's just part of this cultural shift that we're undergoing.
0: So helpful. All right, Karen Swallow Pryor and I are going to continue this conversation about conversation, having words about words. Up next, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're talking with professor and author Karen Swallow Pryor, and we're just talking today about words, and we're talking about the, the changes in the ways that we talk to one another, really as a way of equipping ourselves to enter into conversations today that are more meaningful, potentially more patient, um, where maybe we ask more questions and make fewer assumptions about what other people mean when they say what they're saying. So, Karen, I want to jump from the spoken word to um, the the language that we have developed using our thumbs. Uh, and so, because I, I, I do think that the way that we hear one another uh, has changed because of the way we communicate over technology. And so I just would love to hear you make some observations about moving from long-form letters and long-form conversations um, to... Text messages and emojis
3: <laughs> yeah I mean that's a fascinating topic and um, it, it's 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 very complicated I mean we we moved after thousands of years from an oral culture to a literate culture that lasted for a few hundred years and now we're you were, you know, we are in what many people are calling a post-literate culture. Obviously, we can read, but we're just, you know, we're just defined and formed less by the printed word. Um, and we have all of these images that are around us. Now, I think as, you know, as as Christians, and even for me as a, as a word and language person, um, I, I think we're losing a lot when we lose um, the ability to think and communicate in ways that are formed primarily by print. Um, but you know, language does always evolve. I think, I think, in fact, the use of emojis is part of print culture because think about when, in the early days when we were all learning how to use email throughout most of our days and how, how many uh, miscommunications and misunderstandings took place because our emails don't convey tone. So I'm someone who actually adopted emo- emojis quite a bit in my email correspondence um, because I wanted to, because I wanted to make sure that my tone was coming across correctly. Um, and so they served some kind of purpose there and, and they are like letters and words. They are signs that signify something. Um, they are certainly less nuanced than words are. And that that's my concern. I mean, um, you know, if we think about what George Orwell painted in, his novel 1984, he pictured the power and uh, authority of a totali- totalitarian government being rooted in reducing the number of words in the language so vastly that people just couldn't even think in nuanced ways. So that's something we definitely want to think about as we slip away into emoji land and, and text language.
0: Oh, I think that's so helpful. Um, the loss of nuance is so important. I think nuance requires that I. I sit long enough with the same person over the same content to not only seek to be understood, but to seek to understand. And the pace of not only communication, but the pace of our desire to respond quickly or mm-hmm. be sure we don't miss out on being the first person <laughs> to, you know, amplify something like that. The, the pace of it is is challenging as well. That's
3: that's really a big part of it, and that's where we can become sloppy and unnuanced. We we don't read something well, we respond quickly, um, and that that's the that's what's cha- changing our culture. I think more than anything. I mean, I I think what we're experiencing in this shift from print culture to the digital age is as revolutionary as what happened when the printing press was invented, and people became um, readers and uh, and and books began to be printed I mean the kind of minds and cultures that were formed from print culture uh, were so revolutionary and now we're we're going to experience something else and I I don't I think we have a taste of what it will look like uh, because it's contributed to the polarization and division and the hot takes. Um, But I think we also we have the tools because we have the tools from the past, which includes the print culture and print technology. We have those tools to help mitigate, um, you know, reverting entirely to some sort of image based culture.
0: So now as soon as you say that. Um, what leapt into my mind was I'm sure there is someone out there who thinks that the conversation that you and I are having about particularly the elevation um, and the value that we place on the written word. Like there's somebody out there who's easily making the connection to the importance of the word made flesh um, and the word of God and all of that. And those are good connections. And there's someone else out there who's thinking right now, that's because those two people are operating out of a worldview that Somehow privileges intellectualism and um, and the way it's always been in terms of communication, <laughs> and so like I completely recognize that, and I I don't know if I'm ready to wander around in that, but that's sort of like one of those recognitions of a conversation that's on the horizon. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean that that's an important point, and there and there is but there is a long history hasn't it hasn't always been this way. We have not always been a culture that is steeped in the written word and a culture consisting of people who can read for themselves and who can access books. So all we have to do is study history a little bit more. I think a a fascinating um, fact of history is that Jesus Christ emerged in the world in the flesh at a moment in which um, the Judeo his, history, the Greek history and philosophy, all kind of merged um, and, and laid a groundwork in that particular historical moment for uh, for language and literacy um, to to blossom uh, because of the. Because of the Greek alphabet that existed, and, and a lot of other factors that are too complicated to get into in this in this conversation, but just that there there are many scholars actually looking at that, talking about that the precise moment in which Jesus Christ appeared on Earth and how it was divinely timed to bring about the kind of culture in which we have um, this ability to for all of us um, to read for ourselves, which of course is the, um, you know, part of the foundation of the Protestant Reformation is that importance of reading the Bible for ourselves, unmediated by a priest.
0: I just think that there's so many um, layers and uh, and opportunities here to till the soil of a conversation. Um, you know, it's not necessarily linked to a particular headline, but these are the conversations that we, I think, need to be having so that we can better communicate with one another, not not only better communicate the gospel itself, um, but communicate mm-hmm. as gospel people in a world, you know, where the conversations of the day have uh, moved in many ways beyond uh, conversations about the Word made flesh, um, first as an image, right, The image, the ultimate image bearer. And so I think that we, as we move into this image-rich conversation, like, we ought to be comfortable in that land as well, as image bearers of the living God, talking about the Word made flesh, the ultimate image bearer, and yes, the written Word of God as well. So, um, Karen, thank you so much for just your willingness to get up this morning and have this conversation before class. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me, Carmen. It's good to talk Love to it. You. As always, that's Karen Swallow Pryor. Um, please read what she's writing. Um, she's an excellent author. She's also a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, a woman worthy of the words that she speaks. So thank you so much. We'll be right back. All right. Thank you for um, the conversations this morning, and thank you for walking your faith out into the world that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus. Thanks for spending this part of your day with me. I have loved it, thoroughly enjoyed it. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. Have a great day. God bless.